0: And welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selina Bartlett, and we're really excited to start this year. I know we've been through a lot together, and we're looking forward to 2021 being the year where we can just try and seek and look for those opportunities um, that might make a big, bit of difference in the daily life that can lead to, you know, happy, healthy, and strong direction. So today I'm with uh, Emeritus Professor Martin Betts, the founder of HeadX. And we've started a program called Thriving Leaders, Thriving Minds. And today we're going to talk a little bit about coming together and the things that we've learned over both of our journeys so far in uh, Martin's leadership journey and in my neuroscience journey. And what we've come to learn from each other is that uh, there's... So much uh, practical experience tied to now and the new understandings behind neuroscience that can really elevate people's capacity, one, for their own leadership, and secondly, for leading their teams and organisations. So today we want to talk just a little bit about some of those learnings we've had over the last number of decades together um, in our respective work lives and hope that you can benefit from some of that knowledge today. So welcome, Martin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks
1: very much, Selena. It's a real pleasure to be here. And um, just hearing your introduction there to, to what this is about and, and our journey together to this point, I, I can't help but empathise with, with those thoughts, really, that um, long journeys into careers that... All of us might be either embarking upon part way through or, or celebrating um, happy conclusions to at different stages. Uh, are things that we often talk about. It's much easier to connect the dots looking backwards and from a close to 40 year career in academia and, and executive leadership in universities in the more recent times, um, even though you and I have known each other a long long while to be doing so much work together over the last sort of year and a half, two years through a neuroscience lens has really helped me understand looking backwards over the issues of leading myself leading teams and the organizations that have either thrived or not that i've been part of i can't help thinking that the principles of neuroscience that i now understand so well through you have got an awful lot to explain about how we all work in our daily lives and in teams and organizations
0: yes and i think the one thing that we really have settled on is the value of education. Because of what it's brought to our own particular lives, it really does raise all boats. And I've had many people say to me, as if telling someone how the brain works is going to be making anyone's life any different. And what I've come to see is that it does make a difference. It's like learning how to use your biceps in your arm when you're working out. That that knowledge of that you actually have a bicep that can be trained is actually incredibly valuable. And I think that for a long time, we've dismissed people's capacity to learn more about themselves so they can, one, become a better leader of themselves and, two, maybe help their teams become stronger too. So in your experience leading lots of people in large organisations, can you maybe touch on one thing that you've learnt to be incredibly valuable in these kind of arenas?
1: Well, you talked about it there uh, with education being so important and having spent a lifetime working in education, I couldn't agree more. I've seen how it transforms lives in so many different ways. I I wouldn't have had anything like the experiences for me and my family without the benefits of, of advances through education. But you also touched there upon the key aspect of it, I think, that comes out of education, and the benefits that, that arise from it. It's not not only the knowledge or not even principally the knowledge. It's that sense of self-awareness. And that's what I've then learned um, from working with you over so many months now in the, in the field of neuroscience and its impact on leadership. That As we all start to understand the way that our brains and all brains work, um, and they have some things in common and other things that are very different about them. That awareness of a self, that awareness of others, and that awareness of how organisations of collections of individuals work or not, I think is a- absolutely critical and probably by far the biggest lesson that I've ever learnt as I connect the dots back- backwards.
0: Yes, so, so the advances in neuroscience really are recent, and so it's no one's fault that this information is not embedded in current practice.
1: Well, thank goodness for that.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it took me a long time to learn what I've learnt now, and so it's no surprise. I mean, everyone's heard about Carol Dweck's work, having a fixed versus a growth mindset, and we tell people you just need to get a growth mindset, but why can't people do that?
1: (laughs) Well, I I mean, there's so many things that once once you learn about them and are aware of them with... And this has been my journey with with understanding neuroscience and its profound application to leadership. They they seem so obvious once you know them, that leaves you feeling foolish of why you didn't know them before. And I think some of our best lessons, some of my best lessons of of how to be a more effective leader or a player within an organisation come from perhaps mistakes that we've made. And at, at the time that you make them, perhaps you know that they're a mistake and you know not to do it again. But knowing why it was a mistake and how it can be avoided is greatly enriched, I think, with the better understanding that we all have of of how the brain works. That's certainly what I've learned in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, so my big, like, and as many people say, mistakes and failure are not. They're all lessons in learning. And that's where we go wrong, where we think it's a failure. but I, w- I can remember in terms of um, stepping in to run my own research lab when I was at the University of California, San Francisco, and I all of a sudden went from being within a lab to running a lab, and it was really fast. And I remember having that feeling of, am I having to manage the timesheets, or am I a leader? how do I make people follow me? And I remember that very moment, thinking about what the difference is. And in your experience, I I know you have a lot of experience in that transition. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's really important lesson between, and, and it is the difference between being a manager versus a leader.
1: Well, you used some really um, apt words there. I mean, I can re- reflect back to my time before I moved to Australia, where I was a professor in a university in, UK, in the UK, and found it very easy to criticise the leadership activities of heads of schools and deans and others in, that were seeking to lead me to the point where I was given the opportunity to be the leader myself. and. I don't think I slept for three months after that. Um, and that idea of making people do things, well, that's certainly how I started off. And whether they were failings or lessons or whatever they, they were, I soon worked out that you can't make anybody do anything, but you can enable, encourage, and, and persuade and influence lots of people to do lots of things if you understand yourself and the way that your brain works. But even more importantly, if you understand different people how their brains work probably differently to yours in some cases. And if you can make them feel visible in the way that you interact with them and that they want to follow you, then that's the key to leadership in my opinion.
0: So this goes back to neuroscience and just the 101 aspects of what stops us from doing these things. And the number one thing is how the brain's developed over a really long period of time. The brain prioritizes stress over love, happiness, and pleasure, and that's just for survival. Because the main, main job of the brain is to keep us alive, and it does it very well. But some of those things we learnt to stay alive don't serve us well in terms of when we can't, when we're showing up at work, and then we get threatened by someone trying to take credit for our work, as a as an example, or where we're leading a large team of people and mostly it feels like we're just leading the problems of the people rather than doing the job and we feel like why don't everyone doesn't everyone just show up and do the job why is it always about managing the people (laughs) i think you should talk about that because you have a lot of a lot of experience with that
1: yeah i mean it's um it's the easy cop out to say how um, much easier all these jobs would be if there weren't other people in, involved and but of course the the truth of it is that none of these jobs would be possible at all without other people involved and the trick is to have advancements in our own understanding of how we are behaving and why we're behaving in the way that we are at different points in time and reactions to of our own to stress. I'm sure we've got lots of examples each of us of of how we've been placed in stressful situations and it's led us to do things that on reflection we we might have been surprised by. Well that's not going we're not we're not going to completely remove stress but knowing how to manage it better and knowing our tendency to be like that in pressured situations is half the the trick in then and then surviving in that sort of situation as best we can. If we can make our focus on survival not about ourself and responding to stress, but our our focus on our thriving, that's such a great word that you use in this series and in all of the work that you bring to, to analyzing minds and analyzing leadership. We. We, we need to move beyond survival, and we need to move to really thriving as leaders by being more understanding of our brains and those of others.
0: So I think the, the biggest thing that I've learned um, in the last probably year to um, 18 months is accepting feedback. Um, I personally have struggled very deep with, and being an academic, to... Uh, even though we're meant to really take on criticism because we get rejected all the time in our papers we write and all of that, me personally, I've always struggled with, with um, getting and taking feedback in a what you describe, Martin, as the greatest gift. And I'd like to talk a little bit back, just a tiny bit uh, on this segment about feedback and that comes through asking people questions and that whole empathetic leadership idea that you'd discuss so I'd like I'd love to talk a little bit about that and then maybe marry in a little bit of the neuroscience behind why that may be effective
1: sure I, I mean I one of the best experiences I had in leadership development um, that helped me develop my own capabilities in that area was going going away to New Zealand actually to um, a leadership course that that um, I was exposed to which had a brilliant um, program of of, of arriving without the, the armour, as it was called, of your role and your title and prior experiences in your organisation. But you, I turned up as Martin and met um, 20 others that were, were just names of people and personalities. And we worked in syndicates for the period of a week, preparing case study submissions around turning around major corporate, or in this case it was a not-for-profit situation, And the the Saturday morning at the end of this week, the last session had... There were four teams of five of the 20 people there. And for the Saturday morning, the last session had five hours of one hour at a time, the other four people telling you, as the fifth member of the team, what they thought of you, what they thought your strengths were, what they would like to see more of you. And it was described as the, the gift of feedback. And all... Given that it was a gift, all you could say at the end of all of this feedback, you recorded it and you hopefully took it away and learned from it, but all you could say at the end of it is thank you. And I think someone being open to feedback um, and willing to um, invite it, to accept it, to not respond negatively, but to thank people for it. is is one of the two things that you're talking about there. The other is actually much of that inviting of feedback can come from asking questions. If Coming back to that making people do things, I don't think any of us can make people do things in leadership situations, but by asking people the right sort of questions of what they think they should do in certain situations, you can help them work out for themselves what they think they should do. So I think the openness and the willingness to accept feedback as a gift and the, um, the technique of, of making people visible and making them feel included and empowered and self-made to do things by asking them questions are two of the easiest and most effective techniques that I've learned about how to be a better leader.
0: But very difficult to, to, to necessarily do, like you have to practice. Well, pra- practice
1: is a great word for, the, for, for leadership and a great word for the brain, isn't it? I mean, we, we, our brains are like they are. I'm, I, I know that you know this much better than me, but they've been conditioned by our practices over however many years we've been practicing with them. And from that, that we inherit from generations that have gone before us. So we're not going to be able to ch- change them overnight. We need to practice new rituals, new routines, new approaches to do things. And we'll falter. From time to time, which means we need to remind ourselves to keep trying it again. And I think we need to practice how to manage our brain by practicing new approaches to leadership. And they go completely hand in hand if we're going to thrive.
0: Yes, and I agree. So I think the thing that the feedback that uh, I received, both from you and then with over time, recognizing in myself is that when you're, as you know, an academic or a professor, you like to teach, and once you learn something new, you want to profess it fast and furious because it's like you you see something and it's really clear the answer that you've been seeking, and then you want everyone to see it and understand it. And you think immediately everyone wants to know how to learn this new information and apply it to their life. And as a consequence, you get a bit militant in that approach, and then you basically... What I was doing both was really driving people away from my message because you can't make people do things, even if you do have this incredibly new gift of knowledge and understanding. It's not enough, is it? You've got to find other ways of engaging with people. It's not about you. It's about how they're receiving the information. That's the greatest gift that you've given me is for me to see that that approach was not going to work and also changing around from brain health to something like thriving minds because people do want to thrive but they don't want to necessarily think that there's something wrong with their brain, for example, when there's not. It's just that we've never taught anyone about it, for example.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 as, as you described some of those Issues that you've encountered. I I, I go back to some of the experiences I had on my my course in New Zealand, actually, where approaches to leadership differ from different people, but also can differ from certain people at different points of time to to suit circumstances. And the two images that came out of that about my propensity to leadership, which tends to be out from the front and by example, sometimes more than is good for me, um, and and effective for others um, so the for, for any golfers the analogy may or may not work but the the idea that you've got a golf bag full of a number of clubs and the driver is a great thing to use sometimes but the putters a pretty useful thing at other ta- other parts of the round too I think I had a, a tendency to want to hit it 300 meters I should be so lucky um, with a driver every shot and sometimes that wasn't the right option and and the other um, image that came out of my experience on that course was the way that sometimes the most effective leaders can be those right at the back of the herd, giving little taps on the back of cattle to encourage them to move in slightly different directions. I think, um, you know, that, that's in quite big contrast to the brave heart out at the front storming, storming across the fields, leading um, big armies of others to follow their example.
0: And that goes down to delegation,
1: doesn't it? Well, it goes down to empowerment. I think it goes down to trust. I think it goes down to all sorts of things that help. And recognising that some circumstances might call for a driver and a brave heart and other circumstances might call for a very subtle um, tweak and encouragement of those that are making great strides forward themselves, that maybe they're faltering, maybe they're going slightly off direction, there's lots of different ways of leading people, but your own self-awareness and awareness of the needs and the strengths and weaknesses of others are very important tools.
0: So I think from a neuroscience perspective, the thing that we've learnt the most recently is that um, toxic stress has been inherited over generations. This affects the way that we learn, because if, if we've experienced a lot of it, then it's very much more difficult to learn. It's, it's very difficult to have impulse control, Um, which is in the prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain that allows you to say no to yourself. It's that when you learn to say no to yourself, that's the first step in becoming more in your executive brain, for example. That allows you to lead yourself more effectively. And what we mean by that is when you wake up in the morning, what are you doing? Are you looking for bad news or are you thinking about how lucky you are to be alive? And whatever the brain is, you're consciously driving your brain to pay attention to is what will happen for the rest of the day, because that's how the brain has been wired. And you talk a lot about this. You talk about what your brain's learning over your lifetime, but we now know the brain has already inherited many lifetimes of learning. And what, we never thought of it like that before. But we now know through science, um, microRNAs, and epigenetics... That's what's, ex- that's what's setting up the brain for how you're learning. But what we now know and what we're ta- why we're on this podcast and why we have Thriving Minds podcasts and programs and leaders is because we now know that you are not stuck with that learning conditioning. We can change the brain, it's plastic. You know. So even though you're describing these different ways of leading, just because you were that person, you can also change the way you lead at any moment you choose to as well.
1: I, I, I have some great experiences of that from coaching and, and support that I've had in my leadership development over, over the years. That we, we have preferences, don't we? I, 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 I don't know if this connects with the science of neuroscience that you, you are such a, a leader and an expert in, but I am very aware that we do have strong preferences of how we like to communicate, how we like to respond. But um, sometimes it's, you know, if our preference is to hit balls a long way with a big club, um, it's working against our preferences to do things that are required in different circumstances and context to lead us to being more effective. It's the skill in being able to flex. It's the skill in being able to unlearn some things that we've thought to be the only ways of going about things, to try out new things and apply them in new situations that I think are the this, the self-awareness and the ability to manage self and lead self that will lead to thriving leadership through
0: thriving minds. Yes. So it's really exciting, isn't it? Like advances in science, neuroscience, advances in the way we think about how we can do things for the future. It's such an exciting time to be alive even though we've had all that struggle for 2020, maybe that's the purpose. It allowed us to be a bit quieter for a while, to think about new opportunities.
1: Well, the advancement in technology in this last little while has been incredible, hasn't it? But um, I think the great leaps forward that remain to be made um, are probably even more in the awareness of, of self and the ability to to lead and manage self. That's, um, that's where I can see... That when we move to such a remote form of of working at such rapid pace and pursued it for so long, as as you and I have reflected on a number of occasions, this has created a huge deficit model in terms of um, some of the pressures that people are feeling and new stresses. But it's also shown us new ways to interact um, socially and technologically and and interchange with each other with the use of technology. And I think that throws a new leadership challenge and a new opportunity for us to learn new ways of doing things.
0: Yes, and on that note, I think we might draw it to a close by summarising a couple of things that we talked about. Um, If you're a leader listening or if you're in a team or if you're an individual in a workplace or anywhere, um, all of us have a workplace, whether it's at home or in a company or in a school or university. So inside leadership is a great way to think about it. As we lead ourselves, uh, people will copy us because that's how the brain works. How we learnt to speak was through mirror neurons. So you just have to experiment and try. And one thing to try is just try waking up in the morning... Uh, and looking out the window for a second and thinking of three things you're grateful for is a great way to start, just as an experiment to see how you can redirect consciously your brain. That's, a, that's an inside leadership brain plasticity step you're taking right there. Sounds simple? It is, but it's just not easy to keep it up over time. Um, that's one strategy. The second thing we talked about was feedback and questions, thinking about, you know, as you're becoming more self-aware... It will make you feel more compassionate to the people you're leading. And a great way to start practising is just simply ask someone when you go to work, how are you? And mean it and expect a response and then answer. It's not just a flippant, great, thank you. Really ask your team, what can I do for you today to make your day better? As, a, as an example of a question you could ask, for example. And just watch how your environment changes as you change yourself. So that's another thing. And then... Learning that you can practice getting feedback, whether it's good or bad. The most important thing is accepting bad, negative, what you feel is negative feedback and working out how to, how to integrate that into your life and listen to it. And, and not all feedback is valuable, but it's a good place to start. I think that feedback and questions is probably one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself, your family and your team and your organisation and a great thing to practise.
1: Couldn't agree more. I'm grateful for the chance to have this conversation with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for coming on. And um, as we keep progressing these conversations over time, it's a learning experience, isn't it? There's no one answer for any of this. It's just experimenting and practise and time. And all of us need coaching. For example, it's not something that you just change in one second. So, thank you for joining the Thriving Minds podcast. I look forward to continuing our conversations as we now interview leaders that are implementing these neuroplasticity changes uh, across schools, universities, organizations, and basically in society too. So, it's a very exciting time for neuroscience. And thank you for joining. (音楽) ¶¶